Give it up for Lauren today. <laughs> Guys, I can't, do, I can't do that. She makes that look so easy. That's awesome. Hey, I do have a couple other quick announcements I want to make. All the men in the house. Man, we've got a lot of men. Ross, are you kidding me? How am I supposed to preach after that fire prayer, bro? Wow. So this past Thursday night, we had our multi-congregational serve gala, which means that anybody and everybody who serves around all eight congregations at New Life, we gathered together on Thursday night, and it was just an amazing night. I ran into Ross in the foyer there, and I said, man, thank you so much for loving on our kids. Ross, this big honking country boy that you saw up here praying fire on our families, this, this amazing young man serves with our toddlers. And he said, Pastor Jade, he goes, it is my honor and it's the highlight of my week to pick up those little two-year-olds every, whenever, however often you serve, every other Sunday. And so this is what he does. He gets in there. My, my young son, Kenya, sometimes volunteers with him. Also, Colin. Colin, stand up, please. Colin and Ross, stand up. I want, you, I want these guys to see you men. Look at that. We're talking about big, strapping, masculine men of God who are picking up two-year-olds. Picking up two-year-olds, right? Raising the standard of what it means to be a man of God, loving on the next generation. And here's what I love. Here's what I love. Some of these young little kids that are hanging out in our room that we're creating atmospheres for them to encounter God, even though they can't communicate, here's what they know. They're going to grow up deep in their psyche and in their soul, and they're going to associate being a man of God with something that is safe, with something that is good, with something that is kind, with something that is patient, and they're going to associate that with church and with the living God. And Ross and Colin and for everybody else who serves in this house, guys, thank you so much for your lives, for your ministry, for your leadership, for your talents that you are pouring out to the next generation. So here's a couple of quick announcements I have. Number one, all the men, we gather together as men 615 on the first Wednesday of every month. So our first Wednesday prayer is coming up here in a few days. 615 in the morning, we're going to be here. We're going to pray for our families. We're going to pray for our nation. We're going to pray for our church. We're going to pray that we be filled with the spirit of God and filled with righteousness and faith. And so if you're a man and you're available from 615 to 715, I invite you to come and pray with us this Wednesday morning. The second announcement is uh, next Sunday, we're having a quick little connection time right after service. So if you have anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes and you want to hang out, we'll, we'll bring the, the goodies and we'll bring the treats and we'll bring the drinks. You bring you. You just bring you, and you just choose to hang out for, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. We have so many new families and new faces that God is connecting to the house. And so what we're going to do is once a month, we're just going to provide an environment for you guys to connect with one another as a stepping stone or as kind of a pathway for then you to get more deeply involved in one of our table groups, for our men's ministry, our women's ministry, youth ministry, what have you. So, guys, some great things are happening here in the house. But I'm going to serve you up a full-course meal this morning. It's going to be it's going to be a full-course meal. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to the book of 1 Timothy. Oh, and one, more, one other thing. Do you guys realize that we have a Hall of Famer uh, artist in this church? Like we have a Norman Rockwell Hall of Fame artist here at New Life Midtown who is one of the most amazing anointed artists I have ever met in my life. And his exhibit is going to be going on at the Broadmoor on November the 10th from 4 o'clock to 8 p.m. And so I'm just saying, hey, man, let's show up and show out and let's support Thomas Blackshear. There's going to be these little flyers either out 
uh, out there in the info center where the water fountain is. Yeah, Thomas, we're so proud of you. Where is Thomas at? I'm looking around. There you are, right there, man. So proud of you, and what an honor it is to have you in our house. And man, we want, we're going to support you, buddy. Thanks so much. All right, First Timothy chapter 1. Guys, let's pray and let's jump into the Word. Lord, we're grateful. We're so grateful for the movement and the work of your Spirit. We're so grateful for the love of the Father all through the entire worship service. Lord, I've just, the gospel, the gospel was saturating every song. The gospel that says that God so loves us. The gospel that declares that even though we have sinned and rebelled and disobeyed and turned from you, that you chase us, that you're patient with us, that you love us, that you contend with our hearts, God that you're always for us. Lord, I'm grateful for the gospel. Lord, I'm thankful for the opportunity as a family of brothers and sisters to sit underneath the singing and the praying and the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that announces that we are sons and daughters beloved of the Lord. The gospel that says there is good news that you don't have to live in your anxiety, your fear, your guilt, or your shame, or your addiction, that there is freedom, and there is hope, and there is life, and you've been chosen, and you've been accepted, and there is a good God who loves you and is kind. God, I thank you for the gospel, and I pray today, Holy Spirit, make the gospel come alive to every single one of us again. Those of us who are new to this thing, and those of us who've been living in it for decades, I pray for a fresh revelation of the gospel of Jesus, that our hearts, God, would be awakened, that they would come alive, that the fire of new life, God, would burn inside of our spirits. And Lord, even as Seth exhorted, God, that a new joy, the joy of our salvation. God, I pray right now for the joy of our salvation. And if you want that, just throw up your hands and say, I want the joy of my salvation. God, I pray for the joy of our salvation. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation, the joy of gratitude, the joy of humility, the joy that says, God, my life was in a shambles, and you reached down in a pit, and you picked me up and dusted me off and put a new song in my mouth and gave me vision and purpose and life. God, I pray that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Let our eyes shine again. Let them be radiant with life. God, I pray, open up the scriptures to us. Heal us, speak to us, comfort us, encourage us as we come and humble ourselves before the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. First Timothy chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 3. And today I want to talk with you, church, about the fruit of healthy doctrine. The fruit of healthy doctrine, beginning in verse 3. We're going to read through verse 11. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Very, very important verse. And that verse really is the reason why Paul is writing this letter to his young, his young son in the faith. Look at verse 3 again. I'm commanding you. I'm charging you. I'm keeping you here. Timothy, in Ephesus, so that you may command with apostolic authority, with the authority that I am giving to you, I'm commissioning you to stand up, even though you're a young man, even though you've not reached your full maturity in God, Timothy, I am commissioning you to command 
certain men. We're going to talk about who those certain people are, not to teach false doctrines any longer. Verse 4. Or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. For such things promote controversial speculations. Controversial speculations rather than promoting or advancing the work of God, which comes by faith. And the goal of this command is love. In other words, Timothy, this is why I'm telling you to do this. This is why I'm commanding you to stand up and rebuke, if you have to, or correct or admonish these older saints that are in your fellowship. I'm commanding you to do this from a heart of love. This is the motivation. Because God loves them, because I love them, and because the culture of love is not taking root in the fellowship of the church of Ephesus. And so do this for the purpose of love permeating the family of God once again. Love, which comes from a pure heart, number one, and a good conscience, number two, and a sincere faith. For some have departed from these. Departed from what? They've departed from a good conscience, a pure heart, and a sincere faith. And as a result of departing from these three things that help contribute towards love, here's what happens. They have departed from these, and they've turned to meaningless talk. Now, let, let's, let's stop right there. There's more that we're going to read here in a minute. One of the things that you're going to find that is a major theme of both First and Second Timothy is that there is a lot of false doctrine that is spreading through the church. And the structure of the church in Ephesus is this massive city that is in Asia. It's a major metropolis city. It's an influential city. It's a powerful city. It's an important city. And the church is broken up into this massive network of house churches. And so there's a lot of decentralization of leadership that's going on. And some of the leaders of these house churches clearly are doing things numerous things as you read throughout the entirety of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and you'll find that they're, they're doing a lot of things that are turning people away from the faith. In fact, you'll see that there's this phrase in different iterations, departing from the faith, shipwrecking their faith, leaving the faith, abandoning the faith. Multiple times in this one epistle, Paul addresses this, which gives us a clue that Paul is very concerned about the quality of the faith of the believers and the leaders in the church of Ephesus. So Paul commissions Timothy to correct these false teachers. Looking again at verse 3, I want to look at a couple of key words in verse 3. There's four key words that I find here. As I urged you, that's one of them, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines. These four key words or these four key phrases in this verse, again, they give us an idea of what the context is that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy for. I urged you, listen to the urgency in Paul's voice. This is important. We've gotten into a dire situation. If we could just go to that slide that has those four key words. The second key word is command command. In fact, when Paul begins his letter in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, he does something that's very uncharacteristic. Most of the times when he's writing his epistles to the churches, 
Ephesians, Corinthians, Philippians, Thessalonians. He talks about the fact that he's a bondservant of Christ and God has called him into the ministry. And yet in chapter 1, verse 1, here's what Paul says. He says, I have been called to be an apostle, listen, by the command of God our Savior, by the command. You'll see this phrase often where Paul is in the most humble way. He's kind of flexing his authority. And here's why. Because remember, Timothy is a young man, and Timothy has been assigned to stay in Ephesus so that with Paul's authority, he may command teachers of the law and elders in the church who are much older than him. He is called to command them to stop doing what they're doing. And that's intimidating. So a lot of people get this idea that Timothy was a timid man, that he was kind of weakly or sickly. And depending on what scholars you read, I'm not sure that I believe that. I don't believe he was a weak man. And here's why. When you look at what Timothy was assigned to do throughout the book of Acts, Timothy had to have a little gumption. He had to have a little bit of backbone inside of him. But he had to be bold because he's standing up to this web of elders who had gone astray, many of whom probably he knew, many of whom had been located in the church of Ephesus for many years. And listen, listen, that's just intimidating for a young man who many scholars locate around his young 30s to stand up and say, hey, you guys are wrong. And based on what Paul said, I'm here to tell you that what you've been doing is going to stop. And we're going a new direction. And that takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of confidence. And what Paul is doing is numerous ways he's appealing to Timothy. He's saying, you're my son. I'm reminding you of your faith. I'm reminding you of the prophetic presbytery of elders who laid their hands on you and they imparted a spiritual gift inside of you. Timothy, you got this. You can do this. Stand up, be strong, and rebuke these elders who are teaching false doctrines, who are corrupting the life of the church of God in Ephesus. Timothy, you got this. So these false teachers were most likely men or women or both who were from within the church. They were from within the church. Next key word here is certain people and then false doctrine. So these false teachers were most likely people from within the church. When you look at other churches that Paul's writing to, there are false teachers that are coming from outside of the church. Right? There's negative influence that's coming from people outside of the church. But how many of you know it's a little bit more difficult to correct people who have gotten a, a, a foothold and a stronghold inside of a church? In fact, look with me, if you would, at the book of Acts chapter 20. We get this insight on who these false teachers were from Paul's last visit to Ephesus as he's making his way to Rome to go stand before Caesar. We find this in Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. The context here is Paul has made his way over and he's called for the elders of Ephesus to meet him. Again, as he's on his way to go, most likely be thrown into a prison and suffer for the gospel. And he knows it. He's gotten prophetic words about it. The Holy Spirit has told him himself, Paul, you're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And he's like, so be it. So he calls the elders from the church of Ephesus. And look at verse 28. This is his charge. These are the last words that he says to them. In fact, he tells them before this, guys, this is the last time I'm going to see you and I'm probably going to die. So after he gives them this apostolic charge, they all get on their knees and they all weep together because they're, they're feeling the gravity of this is the last moment we're going to have 
with the man who helped plant this church and establish us as leaders in this church. Verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and keep watch over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And be shepherds, be kind, be tender, care, cover, fight for the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I love the exhortations that Lauren was giving us today, talking about the family of God. She just kept saying the family of God. She was getting this revelation of the family of God. And here Paul talks about this as well. We have been made the family of God. We are now brothers and sisters, regardless of our biological blood, regardless of where we've grown up geographically, God has called us into his family, which has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Verse 29, this is what Paul says. He goes, listen, guys, I know this. I know that after I leave, that savage wolves will come in among you and they will not spare the flock. It's going to get really interesting here. Savage wolves, they will come in, and where are they at? They're not coming in from the outside. The savage wolves will come in from among you, and they will not spare the flock. Verse 30, so even from your own number, men will arise, and they will distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Pay attention. Watch. Be sober, be vigilant, and remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. I want us to look at some key words here in Acts chapter 20, and Denise, just throw all of them up there. We're not going to go one by one. So there's a couple of key words I want us to pay attention to. Paul says, there's going to be savage wolves, and the characteristic or the fruit of these savage wolves are they are not going to spare the flock. When you look into kind of the nuance of this language, they will not spare the flock. Here's what it means. It means they were not going to be gracious, patient, or lenient with the church. Here's the issue here. These savage wolves are abusing the law of God. How many of you guys have ever experienced the word of God being used and abused against you? That's what's happening right here. These savage wolves are abusing, manipulating And using the law as a weapon to attack and to control people, to cause them to live in intimidation and fear. And here's what it says, that no one, no one is going to be exempt or no one is going to be safe from their attacks of using the word to control and abuse and intimidate and manipulate people. Now, where are these these savage wolves coming from? They're coming from among you. They're coming from among you. And I want you to imagine, because a lot of times this is how it happens. These are people that are enmeshed within the community of the church of Ephesus. Again, these are not people that are coming in from the outside. And I want you to think about how intimidating this must be for Timothy to sit here and try to untangle and disentangle the network of relationships of people that have grown up and have somehow, some way, found themselves in positions of spiritual authority within these house churches and within the church of Ephesus at large. And they do two things. Look at what they do. They do two things. Number one, they distort the, tr- they distort the truth. So it's not that they're coming with just erroneous, false thoughts. They're starting with the truth, but yet there's distortions of it. Okay? There's probably been more harm and more 
um, damage and pain and brokenness that has come, not from false, you know, beliefs out there, but from taking a good truth and just twisting it a little bit and just perverting it a little bit, right? Someone comes up to you and they hand you something that is clearly poisonous, you're going to reject it. But if they put just a little bit of that in something that looks good and something that looks familiar and something that looks sweet and something that looks desirable and you say, oh, this is great, but just a little bit of a falsity that then creeps its way in, it begins to shape a belief system. It begins to shape our attitudes. It begins to shape um, our identities. It begins to shape the behaviors of a people that then create a culture. And before you know it, the toxicity of that abusive culture just becomes the air that we breathe. And we begin propagating and perpetuating spiritual abuse, and we don't even know that we're doing it. Friends, listen, that's what's happening here. They're distorting the law of God. And they're using it as a weapon to abuse and to manipulate and control. And again, we find another thing they're doing. They're doing this to draw people away to themselves. To draw people to themselves. Their ministry, their money, their personality, their doctrine, their perspective, their charisma, their strength, uh, their agendas. Friends, listen, wherever you go, whether or not God calls you to stay in New Life Midtown or beyond, you're called to be faithful believers in the church of Jesus. And I feel the fear of the Lord, and I feel the weight of God on this because, listen, in the next 40 to 60 years, you guys are going to be planted in local churches all across this world, and I want to arm you today from this pastoral epistle on how to be discerning people, on how to be gracious and kind and loving and discerning people so that you can be healthy and you can be healed and you can be whole and you can be mature and fully functioning men and women of God in the church of Jesus. Amen? So these savage wolves, they distort the truth. They draw people to themselves. And we learn that distorting the truth is a misuse and abuse of the law. Now, if we look at that word savage, here's something really, really fascinating. Savage wolves will come in and they will distort the truth. So that word is translated a number of different ways. It's translated heavy in weight or weighty. It's translated burdensome. It's translated severe or stern. And listen to this one, violent cruel and unsparing. Let me take you to two verses where this word is used. One is in Matthew chapter 23, and we'll see if we can connect some dots here. Matthew 23, verse one through four. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they do, but do not, to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. Look at verse four. They tie up heavy and cumbersome loads. Do you know what the word heavy and cumbersome is also translated? Savage. They tie up heavy and cumbersome loads. You ever sat underneath something? And listen, there's a a massive difference between hearing the word of God and experiencing the conviction and the challenge and the provoking of the Holy Spirit 
There's a difference between that and sitting underneath a heavy, cumbersome load. A heavy and cumbersome load is something that the traditions of man are putting on you that you can never fulfill in the grace of God or by the power of the Holy Spirit. When a word comes forth, like last week, that is challenging you to break out of passivity or challenging you to break out of lethargy, there is a provoking anointing by the Spirit, but he's saying, by the grace of God and by the help of the Holy Spirit, you can do this. But unhealthy doctrine is a heavy and a cumbersome load that constantly keeps you butting up against the impossibility of fulfilling, fulfilling the letter of the law, right? And it's savage, it's cruel, and it's violent to your identity, to your faith, to your hope, and to your soul. Here's another one, verse, uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Same word here. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You are hypocrites. For you give a tithe or a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected, here's our word, the more important matters of the law. Same word. You've neglected the weighty and burdensome matters of the law. And what are those weighty and burdensome matters? What are they? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. So notice that there's two different kinds of weight in the word. Are you seeing this? There's a weight that God wants us to experience, which means that the word of God leads us to the things that are important to his heart. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Then there is a weight that men and women put on aspects of the law that are designed to distort the truth, And they're designed to draw people away to themselves in a spirit of control. And these are violent, and they are stern, and they are savage. And they do not produce the things that really matter to the heart of God. Look at this in 1 John chapter 5. I love this. Boy, when I saw these three verses all together, I about about exploded. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his Son as well. And this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Verse 3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep, it, to keep his commands. <laughs> and look at this, you cannot miss this. And his commands are not burdensome. 1 John Chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Let me read verse 3 again because it's just so great. This is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. So in Matthew 23, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they're weaving the traditions of men and they're weaving their own motives and their own agendas. And you know what it's doing? It's creating a burden, an unnecessary, unfulfillable burden to the word of God. But look at what John says. He says, these are the commands of God, and his commands are not burdensome. So let's, um, let's skip over here, we, just for the sake of time here. 
And let's jump over here on the slides to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. So Paul goes into explaining to Timothy, this is what I'm about. This is what I'm concerned about right here. The goal of this command is love. The reason why we have doctrine, the reason why we have teaching, the reason why we preach the gospel, the reason why we have church tradition, the reason why we come to the table, the reason why we pray the Lord's Prayer, the reason why we have a liturgy is love. It's love. And if everything or anything that we're doing in the Christian faith is not motivated from love, if it's not responding to the love of God, and if it's not building and creating and expressing love through our lives, we have to evaluate it. Are you hearing me today? So look at these verses right here, or look at these words, these key words in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. Look at these key words. Love, pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's a word study for somebody. Like, go take that and study out pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. And what you're going to find is, is that Paul uses this phrase good conscience a lot in the Timothy letters. And that a sincere faith, a good faith, a wholesome, pure faith is always connected with a good conscience. And what does a good conscience spring from? It springs from the fact that I'm doing these things based on the love of God. That's how I can have a good conscience in my teaching. That's how I can have a good conscience in the doctrine that I'm trying to live my life by because it comes from the heart of the Father, which is birthed out of love. Um, later on here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, look with me, if you would, at the latter part of verse 10. There's some things that we could get into, but I'm not going to get into for the sake of time because there's something very important I want to get into. But the latter part of verse 10, after the dash, it says, For whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine, bleeding into verse 11, the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. Sound doctrine is doctrine that conforms to the gospel. Sound doctrine is doctrine that has been created out of the overflow of the revelation of the gospel. If doctrine does not line up with the gospel, we have to evaluate it, right? But here's the bigger thing here. Paul is addressing the behavior of the church in Ephesus, He's not just talking about beliefs and ideas. He's talking about the fruit that springs out of the beliefs and ideas that are growing from the root system of the doctrine that is in the church of Ephesus. Here's another way of saying it. Sound doctrine will conform to the gospel and it will produce love. The fruit of sound doctrine is love. The fruit of sound doctrine is is love. In your marriage, the fruit of sound doctrine is love. In your business, the fruit of sound doctrine is love. In your friendships, the fruit of sound doctrine is love. In your churches, the fruit of sound doctrine is love. And when we look at division and we look at quarrels and we look at unforgiveness and we look at offense and we look at revenge and we look at power and we look at all those things, I don't see love in that. I don't see love, which tells me right now, God made it very simple, guys. Listen, he made it very simple. He's like, I'm going to show you the primary fruit 
that will, that will help you trace everything back to the invisible root structure of what you believe. And if you're not seeing people that are willing to be kind and patient and gracious and willing to say, I'm sorry, and willing to say, I repent or I was wrong. If you don't see people in an elder board or people in a church or a small group or a marriage who say, listen, I want to listen. I may, I may have heard that wrong. I disagree, but I want to listen. That's love. That's, right. that's patient. That's kind. Right. That's gracious. If you don't find a church full of people who, are, who from time to time say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. You've got to go back to the root system of their beliefs and say, what went wrong? Are you hearing me today? Because good doctrine conforms to the gospel. And the gospel says God loves us so much that he was patient and gracious and willing to extend forgiveness. This is what we build our doctrine out of. We build it out of the character and the nature of God that is revealed in the way that we treat one another. Healthy doctrine will produce the fruit of love. Amen. All right, let's, let's take a look here. We're going to talk about the fruit of unhealthy doctrine. We're going to take a look at a couple other verses that take us back to love. We're going to come to the table. So the fruit of unhealthy doctrine. And here, here's where I want us to, I want us to pray here, actually. Because as I was digging into this and I was thinking about this and praying over this for the past couple of weeks, friends, I just, man, my heart began to break. And it began to break because there is an epidemic in the church of abuse. There is an epidemic of men and women who are using, they're, they're, they're abusing people's pure-hearted desire to know and love God. And they're using the innocence of people's desire to be right with God, to hurt them, to distort the truth, to draw people away to themselves, and to create things that look nothing like God. So this was, this was just me thinking. This was just me taking inventory of 20 years and 30 years of pastoral conversations that I've had with people. The fruit of unhealthy doctrine. It draws people to leaders and not to Christ. Unhealthy doctrine. Let me see where my breakdown is here, Denise. I think I broke this down in a way. Give me one second. Denise, why don't you do this? Why don't you throw them up on the screen and I'll read them off the screen? Because I think I coupled them on the slides in a different way than I have them here. Okay, it's no problem. That's, that's the enemy because he doesn't want us seeing this. I'm telling, I believe it, man. I'm telling you, man. This is going to set some people free. All right, hey, I'm just going to read it, and if it gets on the screen, it gets on the screen. Okay, so uh, unhealthy doctrine will draw people to leaders. It's after the Galatians verses. It would draw people to leaders. It will not draw them to Christ. Unhealthy doctrine will draw people away from the body. Guys, pay attention. Whenever you're listening to something or someone who just, you know, they want to make a church out of a, out of a beer group or something like that, that's not the church. It's not the church. Oh, hey, we, we have common interests, and we get together, and we're buds, and let's hang out. Let's, that's, that's not the church. And anything that wants to attack the bride and the body of Jesus and pull people away from faithfulness, to the body of Jesus, you've got to evaluate it. You've got to analyze it. Here's the next thing. It makes people dependent on a person. 
unhealthy doctrine, sound doctrine, poor doctrine, bad doctrine will make people dependent on a person or on a leader. I pray that nobody ever gets dependent on me, that no one gets dependent on Jonathan or any of the sage leaders that are in this house. If we're doing our job, we're making you dependent on Jesus and we're making you interdependent with the people of God. Are you hearing what I just said? Right? We're going to push you into Jesus and we're going to insp- we're going to draw you to make connections with each other. All right, here's the next thing. Uh, poor doctrine discounts and dismisses people prematurely. You ever had that happen? You ever had that happen? Like you're studying some things out in God and it goes against things that your church has believed or spoken for years. And you're like, hey, I want to understand this more. And it just shuts you down. It discounts you. No, that's not how we do things around here. All right. It turns people who disagree into enemies. Unhealthy doctrine will create enemies out of family members. You've got to hear this. Unhealthy doctrine is, and it creates an environment where you're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to ask questions. And you're not allowed to disagree, which is the further iteration of asking questions. The purpose of asking questions is so that you can get to greater understanding, so that you can follow the spirit of the law. But if you're in an environment where they just say, listen, like, we're, we're not, we're not going to entertain that. And I, 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 would, I pray that even if you have questions about things that we're saying and the things that you're bringing are just totally asinine and off course, I pray that the leaders and the people in this house would at least have enough wherewithal where we could say, okay, well, let's talk about that. Let's reason together. Let's explore that together. Let's practice mutual submission and mutual humility and mutual respect and mutual trust as we endeavor to get into the life and the truth of healthy doctrine together. If you're ever shut down in a spirit of cruelty or a spirit of anger or a spirit of intimidation, you need to get out. You need to get out. All right? So in an unhealthy environment with false doctrine, it shuts down differing perspectives. Uh, The next thing is it confuses a person or a leader's approval with God's. This, this, this one is, this right here is what cult leaders feed off of. They feed off of it. If you don't serve, you don't have my approval. If you don't, if you don't come early or stay late or give money or do everything I tell you to do, you don't have my approval. And when someone is young in the faith, they associate a leader's approval with God's approval. I'm here to tell you today, my approval is not God's approval of your life. I'm not standing next to you when you stand before God. Right? You're going to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not going to be there with you. Are you hearing me today? Like, man, be, like, be people that in good conscience you obey God. And if you ever have a leader or a pastor or whatever name they slap on themselves, apostle, prophet, evangelist, you name it, and they're asking you to do something that violates the heart and the spirit of the law of God, get out of that environment and get into a healthy place where people will respect your will. They'll respect your will. They'll respect your power to choose. Anytime your power to choose is being steamrolled, You're in an unhealthy environment. My job is to inspire you. It's to influence you. My job is to preach the word and trust that the Holy Spirit is breathing on the word preached. It's the spirit of God inside of you. 
that inspires you unto good works. It is not my heavy-handedness or the heavy-handedness of any of the leaders in this house. Can I get an amen on that? Um, It assumes and falsely accuses your motives. You ever had your motives accused by a leader? Your motives. Listen, guys, nobody knows your motives. Am I freeing anybody up in the room today? Nobody knows your motives. Nobody knows your, no one has the right to tell you what your motivations are. The only person who knows your motives is God. You don't even know what your motives are. (laughs) That's why the book of Proverbs chapter 16 says, God, weigh my motives. I don't even know what my intentions are. And anybody who comes along and assumes that place of power and authority to say that they know what your motive is, I'm just telling you right now, they're wrong. They're wrong. Okay, listen. uh, False teaching wrongly addresses your identity. It wrongly addresses your identity. Like if you're hearing any teaching that makes you feel like anything other than a beloved son or daughter who is the treasure of heaven and the apple of God's eye, who God will he'll, he'll literally break down and bust down the gates of hell to go after, if it's not propagating the identity of a son or a daughter, if it makes you feel like a servant or a slave, or if it makes you feel like you're on the outside or you got to jump through all these religious hoops to kind of fit in that environment, get out. It's not God. Are you hearing me today? Okay, it wrongly addresses your identity. It violates your free will. It does not respect your power to choose. It produces shame and guilt and condemnation. The Holy Spirit will never, ever, ever put shame on you. And that, 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 that's number one. The moment you feel shame or condemnation, you need to know immediately that's the enemy. That's not the fruit of healthy teaching. That's not the fruit of sound doctrine. That's not the fruit of the gospel. That's not the fruit of Jesus, and it's not the fruit of his church. It leads by fear. It leads by fear. Intimidation, threats. Oh, if you really, well, if you really, if you really loved God, if you really were serious, if you really, that's called intimidation. It's called manipulation. And the purpose of manipulation is to control people religiously. The purpose of the gospel is to free you. It's to free you. It's to lead you into freedom where the spirit of the Lord is. There is freedom. Like you should hear the gospel. You should sing songs. You should join together with the people of God. And you should go, I feel more empowered to choose the way of God by the spirit of God. Your will will be elevated by healthy doctrine. It will not be oppressed. All right, let me just, let me wrap this up here really quickly. Uh, Poor doctrine will justify unchristlike behavior for some perceived greater good. Here's what I mean by this. Here's what I mean. Poor doctrine believes that the end justifies the means. All right, so I don't have time to get into all the political partisan garbage that's floating in the church at this hour. All right, but listen, for no reason ever are we allowed under God to treat brothers and sisters like enemies. Like, for no reason ever are we allowed to be rude and ugly and dismissive. Like, that's not in the scriptures. It's not in the scripture. Show me one scripture that arms us by the life and by the teaching of Jesus that says if someone disagrees with you politically, you get to write them off and treat them ugly. Right? Show me that. Christian nationalism is a cancer in the church in this hour. It is a cancer. 
And it is one of the greatest cancers. And yes, we are called to be salt and light. But the way that certain versions and variations and the way that certain iterations of Christian nationalism is creeping into the church, it is a cancer. Because it doesn't look anything like Jesus. And I'm not talking about a sloppy agape or a greasy grace. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about we belong to a different culture. We belong to the culture of the kingdom of God. So the way that we disagree looks different than the way that the world disagrees. We don't disagree with ugly violence and threats. That's not the way of Jesus. And it's a wonder why nobody wants to come to your church anymore. I'm telling you. But there's a better way. There's a better way. All right, here's the last thing. Unhealthy doctrine will make a person feel inferior, subservient to, or enslaved by another person based on their position, their knowledge, their race, or listen, even their gender. This is a great setup for 1 Timothy 2 in a couple of weeks. And I know we got a lot of new friends in the house, but I'm just going to show my cards right now. In two weeks, when I talk about women in ministry, I want you to remember this right here. Because any doctrine that propagates, I'm going to read this again, that makes any person feel inferior or subservient to or enslaved by another person because of their position in life, because of their socioeconomic status, because of the degree of their academic pedigree or their knowledge or their race or their gender needs to be questioned. All right, friends, stand up with me if you would. I told you I was going to give you a full course meal, and I've got like, I've got like six verses I didn't even get to today. But here's what I want to say to you, church. Let me read these over you. Just, just, just. If you can, if you, if 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 you're able to, I want you to, I want you to just receive the word spoken over you. Are you ready? Galatians five verses five through six. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await. You guys can come forward. We eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. But the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh but rather serve one another humbly in love. Verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. The entire law, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. For by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Remember what he said in 1 John 5. My commands are not burdensome. So what is your command, Jesus? Love one another. My commands are not burdensome. What's your command? Love one another. Love one another. Not as the world loves, but love one another from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith that come from the Spirit of God. 
Before we come to the table, I want us just to let the Holy Spirit speak to us for a minute or two. Oh God, I pray. Circumcise our hearts today. Give us ears to hear. Guys, I'm just, I'm, I'm sensing the invitation of the Holy Spirit in about 30 seconds right here. I want to apologize. I want to stand right here in proxy for any elder, teacher, pastor, prophet, apostle, bishop, parent. I want to stand right here today and I want to look you in the eye and I want to say for any or every person that has ever used the church or its structures or its systems or its teachings or its position on any matter to hurt you or to intimidate you or threaten you or to tear you down. Guys, I repent to you today. I'm so sorry. Because I'm asking you, I'm asking you, by grace right now. And I'm not even asking that it happen today because these things take a while to heal from. But I am praying over you today that there would, there would, just, there would be an opening in your heart to extend forgiveness, to release those who have held you captive, who leveraged your desire to be right before God against you. They leveraged your innocence and your pure heart before God against you. And I feel the spirit of the Lord saying today, your hearts were pure. And someone took advantage of your pure heart. Someone took advantage of your desire to be pleasing to God. Someone took advantage of your sincerity and your love for Jesus. And right now, God, I'm asking that you would heal us. I'm asking God that you would make this house a healing house. And you take as long as you need to take, Holy Spirit, but I pray that you would heal us from the PTSD and you would heal us, God, from the trauma, the emotional, mental, and spiritual trauma. Some of you were blamed and you were accused, and it was false. Some of you, your names were, they were literally taken through the mud, and in the community of faith that you had standing in, your names were dragged through the mud. You were betrayed. Some of you shared things with people that were in a small group or people that you thought were safe and they used those things against you. And I'm praying right now, just let there be a flow of forgiveness and mercy and let there be a flow of grace. Let there be a flow of the healing hand of God. And I pray today, God, I pray that this house, until you return, would be consecrated and committed as a house of integrity, as a house of safety, as a house that is safe for your people. I pray, oh God, that you would make us mindful in any moment where pride and ego and self-serving, any moment where we're distorting the truth, God, come in swiftly and convict us. Come in swiftly, God. God, keep us from threatening and accusing and writing people off. God, I pray, let this be a safe space for sons and daughters to discover the love of God, for sons and daughters to be deeply rooted in their beloved identity, 
for sons and daughters to flourish, for women to flourish, for people of color to flourish, for people who are on the margins to flourish in the kingdom of God. The gospel is for all of us. God, I pray that every segment of society would be represented in this house and that we would experience flourishing in the gospel. I pray these things by faith and humility in the name of Jesus. Friends, I invite you to come to the table of the Lord where we experience greater encounter and greater freedom and greater healing in God. Come on up to the table.